This week's episode is brought to you by the National Centre for Eating Disorders. Perhaps you would consider coming to their two-day Introduction to Eating Disorders course in November 2022. You will learn about all the different eating disorders such as anorexia, bulimia, binge eating and ARFID, what causes them and what they do to help people to break free and live their lives free of worries about food and weight. For details about this course, please call the National Centre for Eating Disorders on 0845 838 2040 or visit their website at eating-disorders.org.uk. Hello and welcome to the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast. This is a podcast to help you find peace with food and overcome disordered eating. And I'm Harriet Frew, aka the Eating Disorder Therapist. And I'm so excited to share with you all kinds of stories, tips, information and guest interviews to help you on your journey in finding peace with food. So thank you so much for listening today. Now today I'm talking to Dr. Margarita Mascolo from the USA, who is the Chief Medical Officer at Alsana, a nationwide center that treats eating disorders. Alsana is an eating disorder recovery community and treatment provider that helps adult clients of all genders achieve lasting eating disorder recovery and whole health. Alsana has in-person programs in California, Alabama, and Missouri, and virtual programs that serve clients across the USA. Dr. Mascolo leads the medical component of Alsana's adaptive care model. She has over 10 years of hands-on experience and extensive knowledge in the treatment of eating disorders. She works closely with Alsana's medical leadership on the development and implementation of the medical care. And prior to joining Alsana, she served as the medical director at Acute Centre for Eating Disorders at Denver Health. Additionally, Dr. Mascolo is board certified in internal medicine, has published multiple peer-reviewed articles on the medical complications of eating disorders, travels nationally and internationally to speak on these complications, and has earned her Certified Eating Disorder Specialist certification. I'm really looking forward to talking to Dr. Mascalo today to hear more about the groundbreaking work she and her team are doing. The Alsana Treatment Centre prides itself on individualised treatment, which sets it apart from regular eating disorder treatment centres. And they have found that 40% of Alsana clients identify as LGBTQ and they have adapted their care model to meet the needs of this community, acknowledging that these needs are often overlooked in many other treatment places. Alsana is also the first treatment centre to launch a vegan programme for clients. So I sense this is going to be a really interesting episode. Let's get to the conversation. So welcome, Dr. Mascolo, and to the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. I'm so excited to be here. Brilliant. So can I ask you first, please, could you introduce yourself to the listeners? Yeah, happy to. So my name is Margarita Mascolo. I am an internist by trade, and I have been the chief medical officer at Alsana for the last about four years. I've been in the eating disorder world about 14 years total. I used to be the medical director of the Acute Center for Eating Disorders in Denver, and I sort of just happened by chance in this field, and it's just really captivated me from the beginning. So I'm really thankful I get to serve this population. 
Okay, thank you. So you said you kind of sort of happened to sort of just get interested by chance with eating disorders. So was that sort of, were you sort of more a generalist to begin with? And then you kind of got sort of seduced in almost when you were talking about what happened? That's right. So I didn't know anything about eating disorders. I think during medical school, I had, you know, three minutes during one of the psych lectures about anorexia, bulimia, and young women that have this disorder. And I think that was the extent of it. During residency, I never thought I saw somebody with an eating disorder. And then during one of my last rotations of residency, the attending professor is actually an eating disorder expert. His name is Phil Mailer. He's sort of like the grandfather of the medical complications of eating disorders. And he was just a great teacher and really kind of opened my eyes. And then I started working at the hospital where he was working when I finished residency. And he wanted to start this medical stabilization unit for those with very severe eating disorders. And I wasn't quite done studying. I thought I wanted to do a fellowship, but I wanted to take time off. And I decided that it might be worthwhile to see what this unit was going to be about. And it sort of cascaded into this world of its own. The unit grew from two beds to 30 beds. And I went from just being a hospitalist on the service to being the medical director. And I just learned a ton. It was so fascinating to learn what the body can go through and how it can heal. Part of that work was also the education piece because there's so many physicians, at least here in America, I don't know about the UK, but so many physicians in America that just don't know about eating disorders, how to recognize them, how to ask the questions, how to talk to the patients, how to treat them. So there's so much work to do. And has that been quite a sort of large part of your role as well, sort of educating other professionals so they can recognize and diagnose eating disorders sort of more quickly and sort of so people get the help they need? That's right. So part of what I do, I've done things like grand rounds at hospitals and medical schools and universities. At Alsana, we host free webinars and they're directed to many different subspecialties from physicians to therapists to dietitians. We have a variety of topics that we do. I still have faculty appointment at the university here in Colorado and I do lectures to the medical students and residents and so many different ways to sort of educate the medical community and just the community at large on eating disorders. Alsana.com website, I think there's some of the webinars that are listed. Okay, no, brilliant. Well, it's been a great to hear about that because I think in the UK as well, like the medical profession well, and other professionals are definitely becoming more aware and understanding of eating disorders, but there's still very much the stereotype of an eating disorder being like a sort of white young teenage girl I guess who's really underweight and I think so many other of those eating disorders don't get diagnosed or people are just told to like go on a diet or really unhelpful things but it is changing but I think it's just so great to hear that kind of education piece that you're doing and with Alsana and kind of spreading the word and get you know helping people really understand and learn yeah no that's right it's so needed because just like any other medical condition the earlier we diagnose these disorders and really aggressively treat them, the better the chances of a recovered life, right? To me, it really starts with the diagnostic part, which revolves around education. Yeah. And a lot of physicians are really sort of scared almost of eating disorders, right? Because because they don't know. (laughs) And so they're like, okay, great. Now I diagnose somebody. What do I do? There's just a lot of work to do around 
the education piece. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think it's having compassion, isn't it, for these physicians and yes. professionals that are said, like, you had your probably three minutes training on eating disorders. And yeah. you know, that's often what people have had, isn't it? So no wonder perhaps they're scared or they don't know what to do or how to sort of act in these, you know, when they're presented with these patients. Exactly. You don't know the different levels of care that may be available or who to call. And as you said, there has to be a lot of compassion and grace for the physicians. They, they don't know every, we don't know everything. But I think what I've found is that the medical community is really sort of hungry for this knowledge and really wants this knowledge. Yeah, that's no, good to hear. Could you tell us a bit more about the Alzana Eating Disorder Centre? Because I know you do in person and you do online treatment. So yeah, tell us a bit more about it, please. Yeah, no, happy to. So we offer various levels of care. We have residential treatment centers. We have partial hospitalization and intensive outpatient services that are brick and mortar. So we have locations up and down California, Missouri, and Alabama. Each city in California, for example, we're in Monterey, Santa Barbara, and Westlake. Each one of those cities has a residential house followed by partial hospitalization and intensive outpatient programming. Well, during the pandemic, as I'm sure you experienced, people didn't want to travel, but they still desperately needed eating disorder care. So we were able to actually launch a centralized virtual PHP, so partial hospitalization and intensive outpatient program. And in the U.S., a physician has to be licensed in the state where they see the patient. With the pandemic, there were a lot of those orders that were sort of those mandates that were lifted temporarily just because access to care was such a problem. So at some point, we were operating in about 30 of the 50 states. We've now narrowed that down to about eight states, but we provide full virtual PHP and IOP care in those states, which has been really great because it serves as both an entry point for the patients, right? Someone has been in traditional outpatient with a therapist or dietitian and may need a higher level of care. They can enter our program virtually. And it's also been great as a step down. So once somebody has done our brick and mortar, they step down to virtual and we've just had wonderful success rates. Everything we do, we look at outcomes. So we look at outcomes when patients admit, when they step down and when they discharge. It really seems like those patients, especially the ones that have binge eating or binge component to their disease, they just do incredibly well when their last sort of step is the virtual program. Mm. I'm really struck as you're sort of talking through the different things that Alsana offers, how you really offer that sort of step care. And it, it's very comprehensive, isn't it? How people can perhaps go in at where they, you know, at the appropriate level of treatment that they need. But it sounds like there's a bit of flexibility for it to be more intensive or less intensive and to work very much with that individual. Exactly. So everything that we do, so our adaptive care model is individualized to meet the patient where they are. We make every effort to do that when the patients show up. Absolutely. Mm, yeah. yeah. I think as well, that is, that is just so great to hear because I think I know in the UK we experience, you know, just due to lack of funding and lack of resources, but just sometimes we have that absence of that step care where it tends to be more either like massively intense sort of residential program or perhaps a bit the other extreme where it's like one hour of therapy a week. And obviously there are like day patient treatments, more intensive sort of in-between treatments in the UK, but it's not sort of everywhere. And it's a bit of a lottery, you know, depending on where you live. And I think there are many people then that don't really get the actual treatment sometimes that they really, really need because of services with the best will in the world can't be so sort of flexible and responsive as they need to be. 
Yeah. You know, when someone is in our residential facility, they have nursing 24-7 and physicians 24-7. It's a very intense program, right? We're able to control their behaviors because we watch them very closely. The bathroom may be locked, you know, different things. And you really can't go from that kind of strict environment to like, oh, hey, go see your outpatient therapist mm. once a week and your dietitian once a week. It just doesn't work that way because menu planning, or, oh my God, making a grocery list and going to the grocery store can be so overwhelming when somebody has been making all your meals and all you're doing is plating the food, right? So mm. as the patients get better, they make grocery lists. They actually cook. We have client creation meals every week. So the patient kind of decides what meal they want to make for the rest of the patients and staff. And they make a grocery list and cook the food. At the PHP IOP level of care, they go to the grocery store. And are they able to really go to the grocery store and be able to buy everything that they need to make that meal? They have restaurant experientials, right? Going to a restaurant and having complete freedom to order off the menu can be so overwhelming and intimidating. And so they do that in programming as they sort of step down because going to the grocery store and going to a restaurant is just part of being social creatures. Yeah. Well, no, it's really helpful just to sort of hear about some of the things that you're doing there. And I understand that Alsana is quite unique and forward thinking in sort of many of the ways that you're approaching treatment and particularly perhaps around the LGBTQ community. Could you say a bit more about that? And so I know this sort of group are particularly at risk, aren't they, of developing eating disorders and can be a bit more vulnerable? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. So about 30 to 35 percent of our population identifies as LGBTQI+. So I think in part, several things that we do in our programming. One, we accept all genders at all of our levels of care. Mm -hmm. Most of our residential facilities, the patients end up having a roommate. And we assign rooms based on the gender with which the patient identifies. Our medical team is ready to support the patient on whatever stage they are in the transgender spectrum, right? From dressing as the gender with which they identify to medication and surgery and all that. We provide the hormones, we provide the therapy needed um, for that population. We don't segregate the LGBTQI plus population because this is a population that's already, as you said, very vulnerable and already feels very sort of isolated and left out. And the last thing we want is for them to have, you know, their own group or their own house or anything. So we have been very intentional about incorporating them into our program and for that population to participate just like everyone else in programming. So those are a few of the things that we do that we've been intentional with programmatically. We do track outcomes to make sure that we are serving that population. They are getting better just like everybody else is. That's how we serve them. Yeah. Have you sort of developed that more sort of individualized service to respond to this community just due to the demand and just really recognizing that, you know, that population just weren't getting their needs met? You know, was it something that was really flagged through your evaluation and feedback? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, so a couple of things. One, they weren't getting the help that they needed. Number two, there is a very high percentage of eating disorders in that population that remains undiagnosed and untreated. And so we were very intentional in wanting to make sure that the population knows that we welcome you, we accept you wherever you are, and we want to work with you and help you. Mm, that's so great to hear. And I understand as well, do you offer like a vegan option, do you, for people that want to recover following a vegan meal plan? Is that right? 
That's right. So we were the first treatment center to actually accept vegan patients. And so for a long time, we were not, it was one of our exclusionary criteria if someone was vegan. However, what we learned based on research and data is that I believe the number is roughly 25 to 30% of people that recover from an eating disorder continue to remain vegan in their recovery. And so what we learned is that, sure, there's a large percentage of people that are vegan as a sort of manifestation of their eating disorder, right? They have Mm -hmm. serially cut out a lot of foods and only eat plant-based vegan options. But there's also a large part that is simply vegan because of other reasons, ethical reasons. They were vegan before their eating disorder. Maybe they come from vegan or vegetarian households. And so we wanted to respect that and to be able to create an environment where if you were truly vegan, we could honor that. If you are not truly vegan, if this was your eating disorder, then you come into treatment and we challenge that and we're able to help you recover from your eating disorder. Mm, Sure. And I guess that's something, isn't it? For some people as well, the reasons that they may have become vegan may have become a bit complicated or a bit tangled up. And there may have been some moral and ethical decision making there, but then also the eating disorder voice may be, you know, become very strong. And I would imagine for some people, perhaps they're not really going to know how they feel about being vegan and what's underneath that until they're on the journey of recovery. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. So part of our programming around veganism is that we do talk about all the ethical and moral implications and dig deep into the reasons why. The reason why is that they cut out beef because they thought beef would make them gain weight and then dairy and then, you know, then we challenge that because our food philosophy is that all foods fit. You can be healthy and have dairy, gluten, cake, you know, chocolate, whatever it is. Part of our therapeutic work is really kind of digging deep and understanding what is happening. The other time that we challenge the veganism is that they're really not progressing and they become more unstable from a medical standpoint, right? Where the body needs more calories and they're just unable to get more calories or nutrients and they're just kind of unable to get them from being purely vegan. Mm, Sure. But it sounds like really helpful, actually, because it sounds like you are not just kind of offering that vegan option on a superficial level, are you? You're really opening up people's kind of thoughts and insight and helping them challenge it and really work through it. I think that's great to hear because I'm sure like a possible criticism could be, couldn't it, that, oh, you know, that's going to just really sort of seduce people or kind of like be a divert them away from recovery. But it sounds like you've really factored in actually to, you know, helping people to really be very clear about their reasoning behind choosing a vegan diet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And to be clear, we tell them we're very transparent that we are here to treat their eating disorder. (laughs) And if their veganism is a manifestation of that, we will challenge it. Yeah. Part of something else that was brought up is How do we put them in the milieu with everyone else, right? Where, you know, if they get to be, the patients may say, well, if they get to be vegan, I want to be vegan, right? And so we say, we use the same therapeutic moment for us, right? That, hey, you have to respect other people's choices. And again, all foods fit, all foods are healthy, and we do therapeutic work around that. Mm, sure when you're sort of like offering the treatment like say for example the residential treatment would you have people with different eating disorders as well within one setting or are they sort of split into depending on what kind of eating disorder they have it's a mixed milieu 
Mm, so uh, it's yeah. sort of a little bit luck of the draw in the sense of, you know, whenever they either call our admission line or fill out the online form or our app, wherever they land in the admission process and the scheduling process, that's where we put them. We don't differentiate between eating disorders and sort of room them according to eating disorders. Several reasons. A, eating disorders change, right? So sometimes patients have restricting behaviors and they change into purging and then over, you know, they are fluid. And two, most of our healing is done in groups, right? And you can really learn a lot from the whole gamut of eating Mm. disorders. They sort of have very common underlying themes, right? And the manifest in different behaviors. There's lots of learning. Yeah, and a show. No, I mean, really interesting. And I'm absolutely with you, really, because I was thinking, you know, it's not really about the food, it's about the feelings, isn't it? It's, mm-hmm. the, the food is the system, really. There's a lot of deeper stuff going on underneath. You know, I can imagine that would be really valuable, actually, and, and very interesting and insightful to be learning from other people's experiences and just having more compassion as well, I think, for different people. Because I think, I think again, in the UK, more traditionally, if you have, say, bulimia or binge eating or OSFED, you probably wouldn't get residential treatment, really. So it's very much purely for people with anorexia nervosa. And I think Mm -hmm. there's real pros and cons of that. Sometimes it probably could be a little bit more healthy, I think, for treatment to have a bit more of a mix of the different eating Mm -hmm. disorders and, you know, different types of presentation. So it's just very interesting. It is. I guess we're luckier here. We're able to have residential treatment days for people that have, say, larger bodies or sort of in quote unquote normal bodies, but their behaviors are out of control. We're able to get residential days for them. So, you know, someone whose BMI may be 23, 24, but has terrible behaviors, we're able to bring them into the residential facility to at least abort the behaviors and work on that and then step them down to lower levels of care. It's about the behaviors. <laughs> yeah, and it's so true, isn't it? I mean, I think there's a statistic that we use in the UK that says like 85% of people with eating disorders are not underweight. I don't know if that. Yeah, I don't no, know no, that, that's true. Yeah, by focusing just on people that are underweight as well, we are kind of missing so much, aren't we? It's um, yeah, it's about the behaviors, isn't it? It's not really about a number. No, absolutely, absolutely. And this is why when you walk into any of our facilities, you see. Males, females, transgender, you see larger bodies, smaller bodies, you know, it's a mix. So I know as well, something that's quite unique about Alsana as well, it's very sort of female-led in leadership, is that right? (laughs) That's right, yeah. Our executive suite, we have one male, our chief growth officer is a male, everyone else is female. And a lot of our regional directors, so we have one male regional director, the rest are females. Very much a female girl power leadership. Uh, I think, you know, in part, there is a large percentage of people that work in eating disorders that have recovered from eating disorders, and the predominance is still female to male. So I think, in part, the people that end up working in eating disorder treatment are more female. In part, we've been intentional about hiring as many females as possible. And how do you think that sort of influenced the development of services and how Alessandra looked being having that sort of female energy and influence? I think it's been a huge influencer from sort of the way our website looks to our treatment philosophy to our adaptive care model. For example, we over the past about six months, we have really our chief clinical officer has really worked on laying the foundation for the therapeutic work, the clinical work to be compassion focused. There's three flows of compassion, right? Your self-compassion, the compassion you receive from others, and the compassion that you give. 
Patients mm -hmm. that have eating disorders are great at giving compassion to others, right? They're very empathetic people. Yeah. Where they struggle is they struggle with self-compassion, right? They tend to be hypercritical of themselves and so OCD and very unforgiving. And they struggle to receive compassion from others. Our clinical work, the foundation of it, looks really improving their self-compassion and their ability to receive compassion from others. And just like everything we do, we measure outcomes around it. So we do self-compassion assessment, compassion scores, admission, and then step down and a discharge. Once those compassion scores improve, it really allows the other therapeutic work to really take effect because the patients then are in a place where they can hear it and receive it and really kind of put the clinical work to use. So great to hear. And I know, in, again, in the UK, that's something that was sort of mirroring. I think there's a compassion-focused therapy, sort of Kristen Neff's work as well. It's quite popular in a helpful way over here and very much kind of used now so much more with eating disorder patients. Mm -hmm. It's quite fascinating. And it's been really interesting to watch how the patients really resonate with it and really heal through mm. it. Mm -hmm. And that whole kind of compassion focus, is that sort of almost like woven through every sort of aspect of treatment, you know, rather than perhaps say just the therapy or some very core to your kind of values and how the patients are sort of very encouraged perhaps to think in that way and to begin to be able to receive more compassion and think a bit differently from the beginning? Yeah, you're correct. So it sort of permeates all our dimensions. So our adaptive care model is comprised of five dimensions, the traditional sort of medical, clinical, dietary, and then we have a movement dimension and a relational dimension. Mm -hmm. It's a little different from other programs. So when I first started an eating disorder, if you were low body weight and restricting, you had like strict bed rest orders, right? But what we learned is that physiologically, the patients do worse, right? So you're in bed, your bones get weaker, your bowels don't move. And also psychologically, it was really taxing on the patients. So we allow movement as long as somebody is medically stable from the very beginning. And our movement is very prescriptive. It's also driven by outcomes. We look at exercise scores at admission, step down and discharge. Because eventually we want them to be able to exercise. It's part of a healthy, recovered life. But we want to make sure that we're intentional about re-adding exercise and how we do it. And it's never used as a sort of punishment or a reward, right? Okay, you completed all your meals, you can go for a walk. That's not how we move it. The mm -hmm. other dimension, the relational dimension, is where we're really seeking to repair relationships, mainly to self and your inner circle. And a lot of the compassion work comes into the relational dimension. But I lead the medical dimension, and our medical work is also compassionate. It's compassionate in several ways, right? So we sit and we listen. We acknowledge the suffering and the struggle that the patients are going through. And the fact that if you haven't eaten for or you've been restricting for months and now we're asking you to eat however many calories and keeping them down. It's a struggle. It's hard. It hurts. Your stomach hurts. You have nausea. You have pain, all kinds of stuff. We don't rush to throw medication at them, right? We want to make sure that the patients understand the reasons why they feel the way they do from a physiologic standpoint. So part of our work is educational work with the patients. Mm -hmm. And of course, if medication is needed, we don't hold them from the patients. Compassion is just sort of woven into everything that we do mm -hmm. at Alsano. 
I think just so wonderful to hear is because I guess your engagement with your patients is going to be so much better, isn't it? When they really feel listened to and cared for and, you know, when you're sort of really meeting them where they're at with a lot of empathy and understanding and, you know, warmth and compassion, you're going to get better engagement, aren't you? <laughs> Human beings That's, just... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, we like to say that we want our patients to have sort of a soft landing at Alsana, right? I mean, it takes so much strength and courage to travel across the country and go into treatment, right? We want to make sure that we have some grace for them and compassion for them and try to meet them where they are. Mm. And with the relational aspect, I mean, I think it's fantastic that you almost have that as a distinct sort of sector that you're focusing on. But would it mean that just do you sort of like offer like kind of family therapy or family work? Like do kind of loved ones or family members become part of the treatment program? Yep, we do family work. So we have a whole family programming. And I'm a little bit, the reason you hear hesitation in my voice is I can't remember how often we have family programming. I think it's once a month. It sort of changed with the pandemic because we actually used to bring families into our physical locations once a month and have a whole weekend of programming for the families, for the patients with the families. That has changed a little bit since the pandemic. So we do a lot more virtual work with them. But yeah, absolutely. The family or the support circle, right? The support of others, however you define family, has to be involved in the therapeutic work. Because at the end of the day, they're going to sustain you in recovery. And also they can be the ones that sort of raise a red flag, right? If you have a relapse of your eating disorder. Yeah, no, I so agree. Actually, I think, you know, family are just so important, aren't they? And if you can get kind of family on board and understanding and knowing how to help helpfully, because I think that's a tricky thing, isn't it? Family sometimes, understandably, just have no idea how to be supportive. Um, But, you know, once they can feel a bit more empowered and be educated with that, they're going to be the people, well, family or loved ones, you know, they're going to be the people that are so important, aren't they, kind of going forward when people leave their treatment with you? Yeah. You know, after someone's been, say, in a residential facility for six weeks, then they step down to PHP for another six weeks, and then IOP. I mean, how do you reintegrate them into the home life, right? Mm -hmm. How do you talk to your children about where you were and, you know, almost pick up where you left off, right? With all the stressors that come with life, like whether it's significant others, children, work, whatever it is. So it's important for family to participate in programming so they can be ready to receive you and be supportive Mm. of what sort of integration is like back into your life. Yeah, no, I think so important, isn't it? And it's going to really help to prevent relapse as well, isn't it? If, you know, someone's kind of stepping out and feeling a bit more supported and there's some sort of scaffolding in place almost. I'm really struck as well, um, Dr. Mascalo, how you clearly at Alsana do a lot of evaluation a lot of feedback you're kind of really like looking at your outcomes and I mean it sounds like such an obvious thing to be doing but I think for many reasons that's not always done in many centers but it sounds like that's a really valuable part of the whole kind of process and feedback loop in terms of how you develop your services. Right you're yeah you're absolutely correct and we were very intentional about doing that because There's many therapeutic modalities that have been shown to work. But when we sat down and created this adaptive care model, we needed to have a way to say, hey, we think our model is, these are the changes that we're seeing in patients. And so outcomes is a very big, important part 
of the work that we do to make sure that we were correct in our hypothesis Mm -hmm. and patients are getting better. And also it allows us to make changes to our model, right? So this was something Mm -hmm. that we sat at the table and sort of created, but it's not a perfect model, right? So there's areas to improve, there's more new therapeutic modalities that come out. And the medical world is a little bit slower at producing evidence for eating disorders, but we want to make sure that we incorporate any new data or any new expert opinions and trends into our model. So it's a very much dynamic way to take care of patients. Mm, Yeah, well, I think that's great to hear as well. It must feel quite empowering for the patients knowing that they are regularly having a chance to feedback and that they're being listened to, I guess, and that you're taking all this on board. You know, our outcomes are intentionally, they're anonymous, right? We have the questionnaires and the surveys sent out, but we don't find out about them until the patient sort of steps down or out. And this way, it's completely anonymous and unbiased, and they get to tell us exactly how they felt and how they did. Mm. And then based on the feedback, we, of course, make changes and improvements. Yeah, and sure. No, wonderful to hear. So if people want to kind of find out more about Alsana or get in touch or, you know, where's the best place to find you? Yeah. So our website, www.alsana.com is a good resource. There's live chats through our website. We also have an app people can go through that sort of goes, this cough questionnaire is weaved into it, but there's a lot of other questions to see if someone may have an eating disorder and may benefit from an Alsana service or maybe a referral that we can make. As you know, there's so much guilt and shame around these disorders. So we want to provide as much help and sort of education as possible around the disorders. And then it'll say, hey, you know, you may benefit, give us a call and let's see if we can help you. And do you serve um, with your online services? Are you just for people based in the United States or do you provide like a global service? How does that work? Oh my gosh, that's a great question. (laughs) I may have to look into that area because I know that our laws in the US, we have to be licensed in the states in which the patient is. But I don't know how that works for international stuff. I will find out for you. Yeah. Yeah, I guess anyone listening, you know, they can always contact you can't, and then and find out as well, can't they? Um, so I, I know you have got, I had a little look on your website, you have got the opportunity to do a little chat, I think, haven't you? At any point, you can ask the question. It's really helpful. Yeah, no, definitely. And we can, if we don't know the answer, we can ask and figure it out and see if we can be of service or of help. The other oh. thing about the website, there's also a weekly free support group. It's not therapy, right? So we're not bound by the laws of having to be licensed in the state where the person is. It's that they are simply support groups and those may be helpful and kind of a good way in Mm. as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, no, that's great to hear. And I'll make sure I put a link to your website in the show notes. So anyone listening can get in touch and that will be great. Yeah. Yes. Um, Well, I'd just really like to thank you, um, Dr. Mascalo, for coming on the podcast and for talking a little bit about yourself, but all about um, the great treatment that you're offering with all your team at Alsana, because I think it's just really inspiring to hear such a kind of compassion-focused approach, which is very sort of individualized. And I'm just so impressed as well with all this kind of feedback and you're experimenting with different ways of working with patients and being very responsive. And I just think that's just really 
encouraging and inspiring because I think um, it's really needed, isn't it, in, in eating disorder treatments? Mm-hmm. I really appreciate being on and uh, being able to share with you what we do and how we serve our patients and to be a resource for questions for both patients and significant others or families and to really sort of be available to anyone that needs us. Yeah, well, thank you so much. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation just as much as I did. Do go and check out all of Dr. Mascalo's info and information as well about the Alzheimer Treatment Center in the show notes. If you're not following me already, do seek me on Instagram at the eating disorder therapist underscore. And for further support with your relationship with food, do go to the eating disorder therapist.co.uk. If you enjoy this podcast, I would be so grateful if you would follow, rate and review as it helps it reach so many more listeners. Thank you so much for listening today and I look forward to sharing another podcast episode with you very soon. Mm-hmm.